Good afternoon and welcome to Gospel Inc. I'm David Green, your host on this journey of faith and transformation. Today we delve into the awe-inspiring testimonies of modern-day believers, profoundly touched by the influence of Jesus Christ. We bring you stories of miraculous redemption and divine reconciliation, narratives that speak to the heart and soul. Our guests have navigated through the darkness of witchcraft, addiction, and life-altering tribulations, finding themselves at times far from God's embrace. Yet in their deepest despair, they encountered God's transformative power, bringing hope and new purpose into their lives. Now, as fervent disciples of Christ, their lives stand as a powerful testimonies to His boundless grace. Join us this season of celebration and reflection as we share these extraordinary tales of spiritual rebirth and unshakable faith only on Gospel Inc. Welcome back to Gospel Inc. I'm your host, David Green, and today we delve into the stories of transformation that challenge and change us. Today, we're privileged to introduce a man whose life story is a profound testament to the redemptive power of faith in the face of despair. Meet our guest. Once an agnostic police commander, he braved the front lines of law enforcement for over two decades, only to find himself battling an even fiercer enemy from within. Diagnosed with PTSD and a crippling neuromuscular disease, he faced a harrowing descent into opioid addiction, combined by personal tragedy that would break the sturdiest of spirits. His journey took a devastating turn, culminating to a suicide attempt and a subsequent 14-year incarceration. But it was behind bars where the light of hope shone through the darkness. Through divine intervention and the steadfast ministry of fellow believers, he found salvation, healing, and a renewed purpose. Armed with a newfound conviction, he pursued higher education in theology and Christian counseling, even while in prison. Today, he stands before us not only as a survivor, but as a beacon of hope for others, a certified addiction counselor, chaplain, and Christian mental health coach dedicated to aiding those who serve and protect. His book, The Christ-Centered Healing of Trauma, Healing a Broken Heart, is more than just literature. It's a lifeline for warriors seeking solace from their psychological scars. Through his veteran and first responder ministry, he's changing the narrative on mental health and offering a pathway to recovery for the traumatized. And welcome to the show, Norm. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. You're welcome. So to kick off our discussion about your journey to faith, could you take us back to the beginning and share what your life was like before your spiritual awakening and describe that pivotal moment when you first encountered faith? Oh, wow. I mean, uh, I grew up in a Christian family, but as most Christians nowadays, we went to church maybe once a year on Easter or Christmas Eve, so I didn't know anything about God. Now, I became a police officer about the age of 23, and the things that I saw... I had a very difficult time believing that there was a good God. I mean, when you face the worst that Satan has to offer on, on almost a daily basis with, you know, shootings and, and, and people vi being victimized, I, I really didn't believe in God, although I did believe that there was something out there. So I could call me an agnostic. And so my, my spiritual life was, was nothing until um, some adversity happened in my life. And that's when basically I, I finally, I hit rock bottom and I finally looked up. What did you do in the, your law enforcement career? I did, did everything. At first I started patrol and then I went to traffic, which traffic enforcement seems really easy, but you're responsible to take all the traffic collisions. And really, that's um, what began my long road to PTSD was the fatalities. We had a couple of railroad tracks running through the city. And every year, at least two or three pedestrians were hit by the trains. And uh, I'm not going to describe it, but you can imagine what a train does to a body. And I, I handled it real well because my dad was ex-military and he always told me to never show your emotions. So I, I compartmentalized everything and I think I did a good job. And that's why I think I was respected in, in my profession. But when you compartmentalize stuff like that, it, it's never going to end up real good. Then I, I finally I started working narcotics and I love narcotics. I, it was my opinion at that time that every, all the crime revolved around narcotics because Every, everybody's committing crimes in order to get that next high. or And so you know, nobody is really burglarizing cars or burglarizing your house to live in a gated community in an expensive area, right? They're all just trying to get that next high. So I, I transferred narcotics. I, I worked it for like three years and just loved it. And from that time on, I decided to become a full-time um, narcotic agent. I applied at um, California Department of Justice, which has a narcotics enforcement. Um, it's no longer there. They went to major crimes. But so I, I worked about 16 years in full-time narcotics, basically undercover. We were not in uniform. 
I love that. But then that had its um, occupational hazards too with um, doing a couple search warrants every day and the stress of that and then taking kids away from, from their families. I mean, we had to do that because uh, I don't know if most people know, but w- most addicted people, that they do anything and everything they can just to get that next high. So if they're out there stealing... They're not doing it to feed their children. They're doing it for the next high, like kind of like I said earlier. And so when you go into a house and you see that there's no food in the fridge, but there's drugs on the table, you, there's nothing you can do except for have to take the kids away. And that's one of the most stressful things that I ever did in my life. So I, I ended up in narcotics and, until the end. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a really tough profession. Most people yeah. want to know, why did you become a cop? Well, why did I become a cop? I, I felt it be calling. My dad owned an auto repair shop when I was growing up, and that brought in my love of cars. I, I, I love racing cars, and I, I didn't know, I didn't feel that to be a calling. So when um, I was about 20, I went on a police ride along, and man, I, I just loved it. I, I felt that, that that was my calling. And I know it's a, it's a cliche to say, oh, I wanted to help people, but, but, but yeah, it's, it's not just the helping people, it, it's, it's, it's trying to, to make this place a, a better world, right? And everybody says, well, you know, you, you have to risk your life. And, and yeah, you know, I, I think you have to be kind of an adrenaline junkie. That's why I race cars too. And when I quit, uh, it's, I almost miss the adrenaline more than anything else. And, and I don't know if that's a proper thing to, to say or not, but it, it really was. But I, I just felt it a calling. I felt that it was really cool to not only help people, and then being in charge and, and, listen, and having people listen to what you say is kind of cool, too. Yeah, and I think you said you were a commander of the narcotics unit. Is that correct? Yeah, I got promoted to lieutenant about 2004. And then I uh, was in charge of the countywide narcotic task force. Gotcha. And was that the last position you held in your law enforcement career after, I think you said you did 15 years, is that right? Yeah, 16 years there. So, yeah, that was the last position I held before um, I, I quit. Gotcha. And as you left law enforcement, what caused you to, what was the catalyst, right? Like, why did you leave law enforcement um, after 16 years? I I know most people have to do 20 to kind of get their tenure, right? Um, So what caused you to leave? Oh, no, I did a full 26 before I left. 26. 26. Um, (laughs) It it was some major issues um, with selfishness and blaming God for things. So in 1998, I came down with a disease called peripheral neuropathy. It's a disease where the the nerves deaden in your extremities. Now, that happens most to people that are diabetics. I'm not a diabetic, but it's a genetic disease. And then a couple months later, I was diagnosed with a a muscular disease called Charcot-Marie Tooth Disease, which is an atrophy of the muscles in the extremities. Only about 150,000 people in the whole United States has this disease, and by luck, I ended up getting it. So what was going on was I would get blisters on the bottom of my feet. And actually, they're really not blisters. They're, they're called ulcers. They're huge. They're like quarter-sized shapes. And you could almost see the, I shouldn't say almost, you could see the tissue inside the foot. And they were very difficult to heal because you're on your feet all the time and you're always squishing that, um, the, the, that tissue together. So at the very beginning, they started to cast my feet up. So sometimes one cast, sometimes two, depending upon if I had blusters on both feet. And luckily, I was well-respected in my profession and um, my bosses allowed me to work a lot of light duty. So I would, would go in and, and work light duty. Oftentimes, not working, what I would have to do is, I'm sorry, not work, not um, being on light duty. On We worked a 410, which means I only worked four days a week. So on my way home from work on, say, Thursday night, I would stop by the hospital. And they, they knew me so well. They had a standing order. And I would get my feet cast, foot cast, feet cast, depending upon which it is. On Monday morning, on the way to work, I'd stop at the hospital and they would take off the off the cast and um, each time it, they got a little smaller, a little smaller. Then they started getting more and more frequent and then I started having surgeries because when, when you're, we have a sore open on the bottom of your foot, a lot of times you get a bone infection and so they would have to surgically go in and, and take out that piece of bone that was infected. So I had over 30 surgeries in this 10 year period. So think of that, that's more than two uh, you know, two and a half a, a year. So what would happen is I'd, I'd get the surgery. I have to take um, at least two weeks off 
And then the rest of the time I'd work light duty. And luckily being a commander, um, I could afford to do that because I was the administrative boss. So then what, what happened was it slowly they started to fix the problem, right? And, and towards the very end, um, one time I broke my foot during a search warrant and they had to put plates and screws in. Then I was off again. But towards the end, they ended up removing a ton of bones in my feet, which left my feet basically really um, uh, disfigured. And I, I can't move them. So I have to now. I have to wear. I had to wear a brace back then too, in order just to stand. And t- as of today, I have to. I have to hold on to something to, in order to balance. I can't just stand up on my own. So while this was going on, it it triggered my um, PTSD that I had received. So I got diagnosed early with the PTSD, and I was having panic attacks, anxiety attacks, mostly around the things that I've seen and. Um, I would have nightmares that were just incredible uh, about the the death scenes that I've been to. And again, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back or say, woe is me, you know, I went through so much stuff. No, this is exactly what every police officer goes through, you know. Um, I think there was a study that said that a cop goes through about over 400 traumatic incidents in a career. And nowadays, um, I think the latest studies I saw was a couple weeks ago was there's more suicides in the police culture than there have been police killings. In other words, a suspect killing a police officer. So we're killing ourselves at a higher rate than we're being killed by the public. And, and that shows you that, that something needs to change. And that's why I'm here, is I want to change that, that stigma against mental illness. So anyway, I'm, I'm still, during the surgery time, I found that, well, the doctors were giving me Percocet, Vicodin, you, you name whatever kind of opiates that they wanted to do at the time. I really didn't have any feeling in my feet from the neuropathy, but what I did find is that the pills numbed my emotions. Uh, I didn't feel, so I wasn't having the panic attacks. I wasn't having anxiety attacks. I was still having the nightmares, but during the daytime hours, I, I, was, I was okay. And then as it, with any other drug, you build that tolerance and so you pretty much start taking more and more and more. And so I developed an addiction. I didn't think at that time I was addicted because, hey, they're me- the medication. Doctors are giving them to me, you know, it's all right. But no, um, as soon as I got, I eventually got arrested, and I'll I'll go into that too, but after I got arrested, I realized, oh man, you know, um, I'm I'm addicted. So I was going through that, and I was was doing okay, because I was still the boss, and I was still managing the, the task force and everything. But then my daughter got ill. She was 24 at the time, and she was diagnosed with liver tumors. And only UCLA Medical Center, they told us, could do this surgery. They were after going to think 75% of her liver. But this one tumor was wrapped around an artery. And that was going to be a dangerous um, thing to remove that tumor. And they told us that she might not survive the surgery. It's a 50-50 shot. And from then on, I, I just went down a, a slippery slope. And, you know, I just went, I, I went nuts. I, I really did went nuts because that's my little girl, you know. And it was... It was my opinion in my warped mind at that time that because of my flawed DNA, I gave her my DNA, which is going to cause her to have all these different things. And, and I became suicidal. I attempted suicide a couple times. Um, praise God. I didn't know him at the time, but I, looking back now, I think God um, had a better purpose for me and, and really um, stopped me from doing it. So... I started making some really bad decisions, and this this guy that I knew, we had worked together at the, the original police department that I was at. He had, was into some tax problems, and he he said that if he could sell um, some methamphetamine to this guy, he could get out of his tax problems. And somehow, in my warped mind again, I'm I'm not blaming him. Uh, this this is all my my decisions that I made. I'm just telling you how how it all occurred. But in my warped mind, I thought, okay, it's, it's not, not going to be a big deal. I'll help him out, and, and, um, and it'll be all right. But now, you know, especially when you're on some heavy medication, you know, we all think our, our ideas are great, and, and we'll never get caught. And that was the dumbest thing I ever did in my life. I mean, I worked, by that time, I was uh, 25 years of, um, I'd say, honest, hard work, but... All it takes is one mistake, really, to um, have other people define you, define you. 
So I, I stole um, some methamphetamine out of the um, uh, storage lo- or evidence locker, and I gave it to him, and I was arrested the next day. So my whole criminal career was, you know, just a, a couple short weeks. And obviously, I, I was better at arresting drug dealers than I was being one. <laughs> so, And so I got arrested, and um, my wife knew that I was um, suicidal, and I spent the next few days in a suicide cell. I was able to bail out, and when I bailed out, this is where God worked in my life. Now I could tell you where, where God entered my life. Well, he was with me the whole time. I'm not going to but this is when I realized that God was there. I'm at home, and um, obviously I'm, I'm stressed out. My, you know, I'm, I'm crying. I'm, I'm regretting things and, and all these things, but a phone call comes, and um, I answer the phone, and the guy on the other side goes, Hi, my name is Pastor Jeff Canney. Um, with New Hope International Church. I got your phone number from a friend of your father's and I just wanted to, you know, we heard what happened and we just understand that we're here for you. Um, if you need us, you know, uh, we'll come to church. We have counseling. We have whatever you need. We could provide you with, with whatever you need. And in my mind, I'm trying to blow them off, you know, because I, I don't believe, at this time, I don't believe in God, right? So I'm like, yeah, okay, thank you, thank you. I, I don't think so. And then he says, well, before I hang up, can I pray with you? In my mind, I didn't say this to him, but in my mind, I'm saying, God, knock yourself out, whatever you want to do, you know, because I'm not really listening anyway. But he said the sinner's prayer. And I didn't know what the sinner's prayer was because I had no clue about God. You know, and my parents never taught me anything. We, church never taught us anything. Well, you can't learn anything anyway in one day a year. So um, he said, do you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And, and I didn't know what to say. So I said, yeah, sure. You know, I mean, I was real polite. I don't want to make it seem like I was mean, but I, I, did, I told him I did. He said, well, this is where my church is. Um, you know, if you want to come, great. If not, God bless. Hung up, went back to um, sit on the couch with my wife, and she noticed something. She goes, well, what's wrong? And I said, well, I, I, nothing's wrong. And I thought about it for a sec, and I thought, I'm, I'm actually feeling a little bit better. You know, almost the way I, I can't really describe it except for like a weight, a little bit of weight off your shoulder. And I mean, this wasn't a, a conversion right at that time, you know, but, but I, I felt something. So she grew up Catholic. She was a Christian, but she never really talked to me about um, of God because she knew my thoughts about it, right? So we decided to go, go to church. And um, now remember, at this, this, this is uh, uh, 2010, and my, um, uh, I'm, still, I'm still got the cop mindset. And, and if you, anybody knows what the cop mindset is, it's us versus them. And them is everyone, right? And if you've got tattoos or any kind of criminal history, man, it, you know, you're really judgmental. Now, all the cops are sleeved up, you know, so all, you can't tell. <laughs> See, there you go. See? <laughs> all the good people are, are, are sleeved up and in, 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 um, tattooed up. So it, it was a... It, it was a judgment that was really a stupid judgment. But you see, when you work the streets and you only hang out with the same people, you know, you, you have that us versus them attitude. I, I like to even say it's like politics, right? If you're on one side or the other, it doesn't matter. You only hang out with those people and you don't have any other ideas or any other influences. That's the tribe that you're going to hang out with and you're going to ride or die, Right. And it, it, that was the worst thing. If, if you're a police officer, fireman out there, please have outside friends. They'll ground you. So, so anyway, we go in there and everybody is tattooed. We got shorts. I'm dressed up, right? Because I think church, you got to dress up nice for it. It's church. Yeah. Torn, torn jeans, flip-flops. You know, uh, the hats on the sideways. And I was like, oh, my God, what did I get myself into? But... This was the kindest, loving people that I, I've really ever met in my life. They didn't know who I was or what I did. They came and they hugged us. They said, welcome, you're new. What can we do for you? Do you, know, do, do you want to like something to drink? Where would you like to sit? I mean, it was just, it was amazing. I felt, after a couple of weeks, I felt more comfortable there than I did anywhere else. And um, it, it was just amazing. And that's what drew me in, was the, the kindness uh, of these people. Um, obviously, I, I love the pastor. His his sermons were great and everything. So my daughter, she was ordered to have a biopsy. I, I was then I started going to Wednesday night men's groups. Um, I was studying the Bible. I, I made the huge mistake of studying the the Old Testament first, 
which mm-hmm. was like, oh my gosh, what kind of God is this? I mean, we're killing 60, 100,000 people at a time. I don't know if I want to do this, you know? <laughs> um, but, but he was there to explain stuff to me, and it was great. And one Sunday, in the middle of the sermon, now it's the middle of the sermon, the, the, um, Pastor Jeff stops and he looks at us because now my kids are coming to church with me, which is, is such a blessing. You know, um, before, I, if I didn't believe, they didn't believe, right? So if I was going to go to hell, they go to hell. You know, so now I'm saved and they're saved. He says, listen, I, I want to pray for, for Norm and Jennifer because Jennifer's going in for a biopsy and we want to pray for her healing. The whole congregation prayed for the healing. I mean, it was just a, a wonderful, wonderful experience. Uh, a few weeks later, we go in for the biopsy. Thank God everything went smooth there. A couple weeks after that, we get the results. And um, we go into the hospital, and the doctor says, hey, there's something wrong with the scan. We need to have another CT scan. She does that. A couple hours later, we come back, and the doctor puts up the old scan, which um, on, on the scan, the liver is a, um, a light color, and the tumors were dark colors. And you could see all the tumors around. The new scan goes up and it was just um, light colored. There was no dark colors at all. He goes, man, I, I don't know what to say, but you have normal liver tissue and, and the tumors are gone. And then I got mad, right? Because the, the anger comes out of me. I said, you know, you don't understand what you put me through by falsely, you know, diagnosing this. And he said, no, no, no. We have the secondary report from UCLA Medical Center. And, and at that point, it hit me that God had healed her. You know, it was just like, bam. And it was almost like the feeling of the Holy Spirit because all of a sudden I thought, okay, now I believe in God. Now I, I believe that he's a, a good God. And, um, and that was probably one of the greatest days of my life. It, the, the, it could only compete with a few weeks later we got baptized or I got baptized. But when I was getting baptized, my that daughter came with me. She came from the back. I didn't know she was going to get baptized. We got baptized together. So that was probably an equally awesome day. So um, that, that's the story of how I came to God. Um, I was on, out on bail for about two years. Um, I finally pled guilty to everything because I, I was guilty. I made those stupid decisions. And um, I got sentenced to 14 years in federal prison. And because it was over 28 grams, one, uh, 28 grams and over is a mandatory 10. And of course, they threw on another four just because I was a cop. And um, basically, I, I spent a year in a suicide cell. Um, I was in county jail for over a year, and that was probably the worst time of my life, except it gave me the opportunity to read the Bible, right? I mean, I was, I was only let out of the cell for one hour every three days, not, not once a day, every three days. And so I, I was able to read the Bible. Um, when I did get out uh, to the wreck area, which was on the, the roof of the building, <clears throat> they kept me in this cage area. Because what they did is they let me out with the, uh, the, the mentally ill patients, not patients, but inmates also. And this was at 2 or 3 in the morning all the time. And that was a blessing too because I ended up talking to these guys and they were telling me their stories about their childhoods and, and how they came to this thing. And then I thought about it. I go, you know, I've been a cop for 26 years and no one ever told me why people do the things they do, right? Hey, it, you know, this guy has a DUI, he's bad. This guy, you know, has a petty theft, he's bad. And not going into the psychology of why people do what they do. And I started to get really interested in that. So after a year, they sent me off to uh, Fort Worth, Texas um, prison. And I was really upset at that point, too, it got because they promised to keep me in California near my family, right? And they didn't. But God moves in mysterious ways, right? My first day there, I go to the chapel. Um, chapel hires me for as a job. Have a job. Uh, a couple days later, I realized they have a seminary that that came in um, in, in that prison and, and taught um, theology classes. So I ended up getting my master's degree in theology and, and Christian counseling. Um, I I met a LAPD officer that was um, an inmate there who really helped me go through the process of healing. Right, it, and it was based on a on a ministry of it's called Elijah House and they're I think elijahhouse.org out of Idaho and I took some of their studies and, and I we we tweaked them a little bit and stuff 
And through all this time, so one year prison and two years of bail, I was in secular counseling, psychiatrists and psychologists. And although they taught me many good coping mechanisms in order to, to avoid those um, triggers, there was no healing. And after about four months, five months of, of, of doing this Christ-centered approach or Christian counseling, I, I was healed of, of all my anxiety attacks. And I haven't had a panic attack. I haven't had a nightmare in uh, 12 years now. I mean, it's just been, been awesome. So I went further. I went from I, I got my doctorate in Christian counseling from the seminary, and then I got transferred to a minimum security prison after about four years over there. And the minimum security prison is a uh, a camp, a, a, a farm, and there's no no walls, there's no no um, gates, no fences, no locks on the doors, but everybody has a job. And um, I got a good job. I worked in the chapel. I worked as the, the town driver. And I ran the church there. The two of us were co-pastors, and we did all the, um, the church stuff there. I taught what I call now is Christ-centered healing. And co- then COVID came. And when COVID came, um, they let me out early. They let me actually out over three years early and um, put me on home confinement. And um, just before home confinement, I got my um, degree in uh, addiction counseling. So as soon as I got out, the next month, I got a job as an intern at one of the local uh, residential facilities here, men's residential facilities. And I've been working as a counselor now for over three years. And um, I became a chaplain. So I've been working as a chaplain about a year and a half. And my goal in the future, hopefully, is to become a first responder chaplain. But because of the culture that they have, they all hate me still because of, of what I did, and and rightfully so. I mean, I really I tarnished the badge, and any police officer out there, I and, and firemen, I'm really sorry. I I I made some serious mistakes, and I'm really sorry to put every other police officer in a position having to be scrutinized more in, in tarnishing that badge. And so since that time, I, I wrote a book. The, the book is out. It's called Christ Center Healing a Trauma. What I'm trying to do is I first wanted to gear it towards cops and veterans. But, you know, the, the um, target audience is, is limited. And then I realized in prison, too, that everybody's broken. So I, I just geared it toward, toward everybody. And I, I've been um, doing church um, groups um, for a long time now and, and trying to get everybody to understand that there is healing. You don't got to live... With, with the stuff, your, your, your baggage that we carry around every single day from past wounds, that there is healing. All you got to do is reach out and ask. In the day, we're all broken, right? We're all in need of a perfect Savior to redeem us. Um, and that's what that's, your story tells. Now, there's a couple of things I'd like to unpack a little bit, if that's okay. Um, so you talk about just after your arrest, you, a pastor calls you up on the phone and you ask for forgiveness. Essentially, you say the sinner's prayer. Um, and shortly after that, you start going to church. Did you start seeing that transformation in your life before that a miracle occurred? Did you start seeing, did you start reading your Bible? Did you start seeing that transformation of faith um, happening? Well, I did notice a few things, right? I, I found myself being a little bit more compassionate you know, I mean, I still felt I had that cop attitude, but I, I did feel a little bit more compassionate. So what I, I was doing is I was volunteering at a, um, I, I guess you just call it a soup kitchen. So I, at lunches, a couple times a week, I would go help feed um, the, the needy. I, I never would have done that before. I mean, you, you would never see me in a place like this, you know. And, you know, that, that reminds me, one day I, I was, I was in the backyard and I was kind of like, Woe was me, woe was me. But, but I looked up, and we live next to this hill, and there's just some trees and stuff. And I looked at it, and I, I thought to myself, wow, that's beautiful. I never really saw the beauty in that before, right? It's, it's we go through life with these blinders on because working and, and earning money and, and having status and power, you know, that, that's our main focus. But we don't open up to, like, the wonders of the world and, and, and all that. So... It was a very slow process because, again, I think God knew at that time that he needed a miracle in my life in order to convince me, you know, because if you go through 20, well, you you know, now, now you said it, you go through 26 years of just seeing horrible, horrible stuff on the news in, in, in your own city, 
it's very difficult to, to believe. And, um, and that's why my book has a couple chapters of Bible study, really why we should believe the Bible. Why should we believe that there is a God? Why would we believe that, you know, um, God has a healing ministry? Because I didn't know any of that stuff. And if I would have known maybe if the gospel is so simple, I thought Christianity was just a bunch of rules. And, and yeah, I mean, there is. There's two rules, right? Love God and love everybody else. That's it. You know, and then when you make a mistake, you just say, sorry, God, I, I screwed up. And that, that's it. It's, it's, I always thought it was so complicated with the commandments and all this stuff. So I, I think that everybody just needs to know who God really is. But no, that wasn't an immediate thing. That was a slow process. Sorry about that rabbit hole I went down again. <laughs> oh, it's great. Um, so after you're sentenced by the judge and you go into jail, you mentioned that you spend a year in county, which is pretty routine for prisoners before they, they transfer to the penitentiary. You, you, but you mentioned you were in a suicide cell. For mm. you. Were you in a suicide cell or a protective custody? Well, I guess we call it protective custody. So it wasn't a rubber room, but it was a really small. It was like eight feet by three feet and um, had a big giant window right there where the um, correctional officer sat 24-7. Every 15 minutes he had to look at me and make sure I was still alive and sign something. But it was, it was bad because you're, you're all by yourself in that little thing and there's not one minute of privacy and the, the uh, lights are on 24-7. There, there's no mattress, it's a yoga mat and that you don't have any warm clothing because you know clothing you could hang yourself with and stuff so um so it wasn't a rubber room but it was basically both a suicide cell after i left there um they told me that another child molester was going to come in there so um it, it, w- it was horrible for that fact mm-hmm. but but i think god knew that hey i'm going to give him the time to really research and and, and read and, and, I, and I did that. And I had time to write letters. And I mean, it was, it was, you, you know, people don't believe me when I say this, but if God came down right now and said, Norm, you know, I want to give you a do-over where you don't have to go to prison, right? You can change your mind. Don't, don't make those stupid mistakes and decisions that you made. And, and I will allow you to, to do this do-over. I thought about it long and hard. And I wouldn't take it. And the reasons why I wouldn't take it is because I lived my whole life miserable, really. I mean, I was not a happy person. And the way I see it, and I write this in the book, the way I see it is since the fall, we all got this hole in our heart, right? And we try to fill it with, with everything that we think, food, um, you know, alcohol or, or drugs or power, money, you know, possessions. You know, I always had to have a new car every two years. I had to have a boat. You know, the, my, my race car wasn't fast enough. It, I, I never saved any money because I was spending so much money, but I was working tons and tons of overtime. Mm-hmm. And although that felt good for a, a short time, I, I still wasn't truly happy. And it wasn't until that I, I allowed God in my heart, which made it whole, W-H-O-L-E, right? It, everything came together. And even though I was in prison, even though I was separated from, I had seven grandkids, a loving wife, uh, five kids. It was the worst time of my life, but even at the worst time of my life, I had peace, right? And and now I know that I'm going, going to heaven because I truly in my heart believe there is a heaven and there is a hell. And if I would have said no, I would have ended up retiring, right? But retiring as a miserable SOB. And I, I don't know if you know any, but I know a few uh, retired cops that are just miserable. I sit on their couch and drink all day, and they're so um, negative, you know. And so God gave me the opportunity of not having to to be that kind of person. And so um, uh, I'm grateful to have had the experience of going through trials in order to know w- what good times how pleasing and happy good times are, if that makes sense. It does. And it reminds me of like Psalm 107, I believe, where it says, let the redeemed tell their story. Much like Paul was a murderer, right? He, after he did, he went through his transformation and he wrote a big chunk of the Bible, right? Because he was able to experience that and tell others. And like I said, everybody deserves grace. But as, so it kind of go into that prison experience, right? Did, did other inmates know you were a police officer during that time? I, I think that's like the cop's worst fear of everything is going to jail and being with all the guys you locked up. 
Yeah, it, it was. I mean, I was scared to death. But then some guys at the church that I was going to obviously had been in prison. And they kind of gave me some hints and stuff, what to say and what not to say. Because to my surprise, the first day you're there is the, the who do you run with? Right, and and that means who do you hang out with? Are are, are you a white supremacist? Are are you this? Are you that? What gang do you have? And I said, man, the only the only person I run with my kids, you know, and my grandkids, and that's it. So they told me kind of how to how to handle it, and I, so I basically told them, listen, I'm a Christian, I'm neutral, I'm Sweden, um, whatever you do is fine with me. It's none of my business, but you know, I, I'm not getting involved in anything. So, but when I first came in, though, I lied and I said that I was a fireman. <clears throat> I, I was a little bit scared. You know, and after about six months, I felt God telling me, listen, if, if I'm giving you a testimony, if you really want to have this testimony, you're going to have to tell the truth. And I was scared to death. But the people that had already, I don't want to say built a relationship because there really is no friends there. But the people that I kind of hung out with, I told them first and, and they were OK, you know, because they, they knew they knew me by, by that time. And they knew that I wasn't going to stitch anybody off and I wasn't there to, to, to do anything. So there was only a couple of guys that really got my face. And, you know, they were basically saying, well, you know, I hate cops. And, you know, you better not be found in any kind of spot place alone or else we're going to beat the crap out of you. And um, but, you know, God, I think God protected me because I, I never saw those guys um, where it really affected me was. So because I'm white, I had to hang out with the white guys and not really hanging out, but. The, they have different rooms for televisions, right? So they have a black room, a Mexican room, um, a, a Muslim room, and a white room. And in order to watch TV, you have to show your papers in order to, to, to be allowed in the room, right? And what they weren't looking for cops. They were looking for snitches and, and pedophiles. That's what they were really looking for. So when I proved to them that I never testified against anybody and that my crimes were not child-related, they, they let me in. The only thing they wouldn't let me do is work out in, within the weight area. They, for some reason, they just said, no, we're not, we're not having you. So um, all my exercise was limited to walking, and, and, that, and that's it. But that was the only really negative. Um, in Texas, there was like eight other cops in there, which I was really surprised about. I didn't think there were other cops in prison. I thought I was the only one. But everything from um, uh, DUIs on federal land to... Um, um, you know, uh, this LAPD officer that um, really taught me how to, how to study the Bible. He was there for drug violations, a couple other guys for beating, beating people up and, and stealing from um, defendants, stuff like that. Um, and not that I was friends with them or wanted to be friends with them, but it's comforting to know somebody that speaks your language, you know, and, and understands you a little bit. And, um, Maybe even if something did happen, that I'd have somebody to, to watch my back a little bit. But I, I never needed that. And then when I got to minimum security, um, nobody cared over there because everybody just wants to do their time and get out. There were CEOs to huge companies. I mean, uh, guys that have bezeled $70 million from places were there. And they, they're not worried about a cop. You know, they, they just want to do their time and get out. And nobody wanted to cause any problems. And I mean, there still were a bunch of stuff going on, but mostly between the gangs and stuff. So my experience in prison was not that bad, really, to, to, um, to be honest. Yeah, as, as a Christian walking that path during your prison days, right? Like, how, how did you, how were you able to conduct yourself? Because, you know, a lot of time in law enforcement, it's like the loudest person can kind of get the most distance and get people away from them. The tough guy attitude that most yeah. cops carry, myself included when I was a cop, right? How were you able to carry yourself in prison, have that respect, be left alone, but still display your Christian values? Well, I don't know if there was any respect, um, but yeah, yeah, you know, it was, it was trying to do the right thing. I mean, if you know anything about prison, there's there's always scams going on. There's always, you know, side hustles. Guys want to um, do your laundry for, you know, some food, you know, out of the ice cream or two a week. Um, so I just tried to stay out of that fray. You know, um, I tried to just do, even though it would have been cool to have someone do my laundry and stuff, um, I just I just tried to stay away from all that. Uh, when the talk got into um, gangs or, or, or experiences with drugs, I, I just kind of walked away. And, and that's really how I did it was by example. Um, I wasn't there to, to say shame on you for what you did. Because again, I, I don't know, with the sho- I, I'd have to walk in the shoes they walked in, right? 
And, and that's what I try to tell people right now that, so I've been home over three years and um, only one cop is, st- is stopped by and said, man, you know, how, how you doing? And, and I, I love the guy for it. But, and I understand it. I'm not saying I don't understand it because I was there too when we, I had to arrest a couple cops during my career and, and the judgments that I had against them were, were pretty horrible. But now I wonder, okay, what happened in their life for them to make such stupid decisions, right? So I wasn't there to judge. And also, when guys would ask me about their cases, I would kind of read them over and say, hey, you know, this is what I think about it, you know, because everybody's trying to beat their case with prison attorneys. <laughs> Seen many of them. Yeah. Um, yeah. Did you have an opportunity to to convert people to Christianity to preach God's word? In only only two, and um, I'm really proud of that because not too many Christians even do one. But um, um, I I volunteered at the hospital there. Uh, Fort Worth was a hospital because of my illnesses. They they sent me there, and um, we went and talked to the guys. I mean, they, these were some. Sixty percent of the people there were were pedophiles and were were um, child molesters, so it was really difficult to really befriend any. I don't want to say befriend because friends not really aren't there, but to be kind to people when you really heard what they did, because even as as a Christian now, compassion and forgiveness, child crime still hits me really hard, but. A lot of those guys had such serious illnesses, like they were waiting for heart transplants, liver transplants, you, you name it. And it was really, it was really sad, you know. And I, I think me and this other guy who went there, I think we were able to, 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 to show the Lord's love and kindness. And, and two guys before they passed on there um, accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior. So I'm really proud of that. I wish I could do more, but it, it's it's so hard because. When I wasn't a Christian, people would come to me and say, "Hey, you got to go to church. If you don't go to church, you're going to, you know, hell." That pushed me further away, you know. So um, I like the idea of planting the seeds, and if they have questions, they can come to me, and, and I'll tell them. Because in my role as a chaplain, you know, a lot of people are really in that agnostic category, or or they may be a different religion, and um, you, you can't just come on strong and say, "Hey." You know, um, Jesus loves you. <laughs> He's here to save you. So, um, uh, yeah, yeah. But I did too. So that was that was. I'm really blessed to have done that. Yeah, that's a that's an absolutely huge blessing. Um, yeah. One is a blessing, but if you can get two or, or more as your life continues down, uh, being a chaplain and, and a preacher and what have you, like all those are blessings. And 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 though a lot of people say thank you for your service if you're in the military or in law enforcement, no, thank you for your service for what you've done there because I think that's the most important thing we can do in mm. this life. Um, so after your release, right? How's how's things been going for you? Well, I think things are great. I mean, besides the difficulty of coming home. So I was in prison eight and a half years. Coming home and expecting everything to be like it was when I left was my biggest letdown, right? My wife, um, bless her heart, she's the most wonderful woman in the world. She managed the house and, and, and stuff going on. We had two burglaries while I was gone and car breakdown. I mean, she... She, she's in charge of the finances, so I expected to come in and be the man of the house again, and, and now that's not happening. She's she's there, she's doing it, so it was a little bit humbling. Um, I had four grandkids while I was in prison. Two of my daughters got married while I was in prison, so my dreams of walking them down the aisle were shattered. Um, these kids didn't know who I was because they were the youngest one was I think two when I came home. Um, so, but now during this time, I've been trying to spend a lot of time with them, going to their hockey games and soccer games and baseball games, and spending time and dance and cheer and all that stuff. And and I think that we've moved past it, you know. And I've apologized a million times to my my kids because they really got hit hard with Facebook ninnies and, and jerks. You know, saying your dad should be in the gas chamber, your dad should be, you know, um, get the firing squad. You know, I mean, they, they didn't deserve that. They, they didn't, I mean, but it's my, own, my, it's my fault and I have to have to own up to that. But right now, my re- relationship with my kids, um, I still have one son that's a little standoffish. Um, but the other four are, are, are awesome and I'm so grateful to God that they he's allowed me to. 
um, build those relationships back up. Um, but it, it was, it's not easy at first, you know, and, um, we got, we all got to humble ourselves at some point. And I did that a long time ago. So I was used to eating humble pie. <laughs> no, that's a beautiful thing. And I, I'm, I'm really happy to hear that everything's going so well for you. Thank you. Um, it's true. God is working in your yeah. life. So when we talk about like through your message of hope, right? What words of wisdom or encouragement can you offer others who may be walking a path similar to yours? Well, I just want to say there is healing. I mean, there, a lot of people think that they got to live with these these scars and these bruises, but but like, like Jesus, you know, he when he showed um, Thomas that the holes in, in his in his side and his his hands, these this is his testimony, right? So we're going to have those scars, we're going to have those bruises, but when you come out of it, you're going to have an awesome testimony. And, and I truly believe what, what God says in um, Corinthians that he allows us to go through things. And as he helps us to go through these difficult times, that once we're through, we are meant to help others that are going through similar things. And that's what I try to focus on. But I went through the same thing. I, I was miserable for a long time. I knew stuff wasn't right, you know, but I didn't accept it because I was a warrior. You know, um, I was a cop. I, I was a, you know, 240-pound, you know, six-foot-three dude that and nothing can, can, you know, get me. It, it's me. But when you have uh, um, emotional wounds and scars from the past, it doesn't matter how strong you are. It's always going to stay there, and it will catch up to you. It's like balancing some beach balls, right? We know if we take two beach balls and put them underneath the water, you know, it, it's, it's not that easy, Right. You could do it, but eventually one of those is going to come up. So, you know, the right side is, is stress. The left side is maybe some grief of the past. You know, then, then depression sets in and anxiety. But one of these days, one of those things is going to come up, and it's going to come up with a lot of force. And that's what happened to me. I was trying to hold stuff down for so long because, as you know, going to seek help as a as a cop and this is true of firemen i think it's even true in in emergency room doctors and nurses and paramedics that if i would say okay sarge i I need to i need to talk to somebody sure you know and then you tell the truth to that counselor and say you know last night i had a gun in my mouth and and i really feel like i um i don't want to be around here anymore you leave the first call is to the chief caught chief calls you in let me see your gun let me see your badge and then you're not at work for a couple months and people know exactly, right? Then the word gets out. If you do come back to work, no one will ever work with you again. You know, no one will cover you if you need cover. No one will even ask you to cover because they don't want a mentally ill person helping them. You know, so, so there's, there is help. We just need to ask for it. So please, if you're out there and you're feeling that, especially if you're in first responders, don't make the mistakes I made. Most people are not going to commit crimes. However, um, I've, we've had a lot of guys at the recovery center that I've dealt with that are cops that got DUIs, got in crashes. One, one guy k- killed a guy on federal land and was in federal prison with me. You know, so it might not manifest in stupid ways I did, like s- stealing drugs, but you could still end up in a DUI. You could kill a kid on a bike. I mean, there's a, a wide variety of ways. So the main message is there is help. You just have to ask for it. You don't have to live this way. It's, it's just a matter of figuring out God's principles that apply in the Bible to healing emotional wounds. And there are many principles. It's just a matter of self-evaluation and, and getting in there and doing the hard work. It's a beautiful thing. Um, one last question for you. So looking at your current endeavors, could you highlight any ongoing projects or missions that reflect your spiritual journey? Hmm. Well, my, my main one is working in churches to do, do programs. So in other words, it's like a seminar. Um, it's on a PowerPoint. Um, we'll have the congregation come in at, or, or people that want to come in on a Saturday, do like a three, four hour block, depending upon um, the pastor, what he wants to do. And I teach the healing principles of, of what it's about, you know, and everybody's broken, right? I don't, I don't think I've ever met somebody that is telling the truth when they haven't been through an, an emotional wound. And I'm not talking about PTSD like combat or, or being a cop. I, I know people that their lives have just disintegrated after a divorce, 
right? I mean, they, for some reason, the divorce affected them in such a traumatic way that they never were able to move forward. And again, we don't have to live like that, you know? So that, that's what I've been working on. I've been trying to do a lot of um, counseling for cops, um, you know, a Christian counseling. I'm, I don't have a shield on the, uh, on the door or anything, but if, if co- co- some cops have contacted me and we've been doing some Zoom stuff, so hopefully I can get one cop at a time or one fireman at a time, that would be awesome. Yeah, no, thank you for sharing that. And if my viewers or my listeners want to connect with you, what's the best way to do that? Um, is my website is um, www.christ-centeredhealing.com. Christ-centeredhealing.com. Through there, you can email me and um, ask me any questions you want. Or um, I, the, the book is on the inter- or is on that page also to buy with a study guide for small groups. So that's another thing we do is we do small groups um, for, from our church. Wonderful. Norm, as we conclude our inspiring conversation today, I I am really just moved by the incredible journey and transformation that's occurred through your life. Um, And I really appreciate you sharing with us. Your story stands as a powerful testament to the resilience of the human spirit and the transformative power of faith in overcoming life's greatest challenges. As we part, I'm reminded of verse Isaiah 40, 31 that really resonates with me and reminds me of your life. Right? So I just want to share that with you. It says, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. I believe this verse encapsulates your journey, Norm, from enduring immense challenges to providing renewed strength and purpose through your faith. Your story is a source of inspiration for all of us, reminding us to find hope and resilience in our own lives. I just want to thank you for being on Gospel Inc. today. Um, it's been an incredibly amazing opportunity connecting with you. Oh, thank you so much. I mean, those are such kind words. It makes me want to cry, but I appreciate you. And it, getting the word out is so important. And getting God's word out is, is, is even more important. And I'm so grateful that you're doing that and on a daily basis. So God bless you for your work also. Thank you so much, sir. Have a good evening. You too. Bye-bye. In today's Stara Narrative, we witness the profound impact of faith and the grace found in redemption. It calls upon us to abandon our wayward paths and realign with our Lord and Savior. Let this moment of reflection be guided by the words of the Scripture. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. We are promised a grace that not only forgives, but renews. A grace that envelopes us with the warmth of His divine affection. As we conclude, I invite you to join me in a moment of prayer. Close your eyes, bow your heads with me, and let's reach out to our Lord and Savior. Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I am a sinner, and I ask for your forgiveness. I believe you died for my sins and rose from the dead. I turn from my sins and invite you to come into my heart and life. I want to trust and follow you all the days of my life. You are my Lord and Savior. Amen. Remember, saying this prayer or any other prayer will not save you by itself. It is the genuine faith and conviction in your heart that God cares about you. The words are simply a way for you to express your faith and commitment to God. The true salvation experience comes from the truly believing in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, feeling remorse for your sins, and living a life that shows a commitment to following the teachings of Jesus. Thank you for joining me today. If this message resonated with you, I'd be honored if you consider subscribing. In the coming weeks, we'll connect with a host of fascinating individuals, and I eagerly anticipate the rich discussions ahead. Until we meet again, remain inspired, steadfast in faith, and let the gospel leave its indelible mark upon your soul.